You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Hello and good evening. My name is Kathleen McLean. I work in the Department of Education and Public Programs here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And tonight, I'm really pleased to welcome you to this, Thought Balloons, Artful About Play, Playful About Art. Mark Connery, Jonathan Mack, Jim Monroe. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce Jim. Jim's going to talk for a while. We'll have time afterwards for questions. But just as a kind of preamble, tonight's talk uh, happens under the umbrella of the Artist-in-Residence program here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. We have four residencies each year, and Jim Monroe is currently in residence until April 4th. And while here, has been up to all kinds of things, including fancy video game party, which some of you might have attended. Um, he also currently has three Trontrons installed. These are the vintage arcade game cabinets you may have noticed in our community gallery on the concourse level. And uh, he's basically an indie culture maker who is up to all kinds of things. So please join me in welcoming Jim and Mark and John. Thanks very much. Thanks, Kathleen. So, um, so I'm here uh, ostensibly for video game art. And this is, um, this is despite the fact that I have a kind of a, a long history of medium hopping. So I started in zines, uh, independent magazines, um, made my way to books. And of my six books, the last two are graphic novels. Um, so I've made uh, two feature films and a half dozen shorts on top of that. So I, I kind of, I'm an un, as I say, an unrepentant sort of medium hopper. I go to a variety of different uh, uh, sort of modes of expression. Um, but I, I didn't really want to be framed as a multimedia artist uh, in, in this context. I thought it was way more interesting to sort of um, be able to uh, sort of put forth uh, the sort of dissonant idea of games in the galleries. Um, and uh, I've been really um, uh, pleasantly surprised at both the AGO support but also uh, the public's uh, reception to it. Um, we've seen lots of different um, sort of media uh, discussions started in CBC, in Toronto Star, Post, a bunch of different sort of mainstream outlets, uh, asking the question, are games art? Um, which is a pretty boring question for people in the games community. We've been sort of, uh, kind of, it's been a sort of decided sort of uh, thing for the last, you know, five or ten years, uh, and it is a kind of circular discussion to a certain extent. But in the mainstream context, it's a really good one to have because there's still a, a, a lot to do in terms of um, broadening people's per perception of games and, and, and whatnot. Um, so what I thought I'd do is sort of um, talk a little bit about uh, two games uh, in particular that I, uh, uh, that I, I worked on or developed. Um, the first one is called uh, Punk Points. So you'll have to forgive my uh, impromptu laptop DJing here. So yeah, so this is Punk Points. Um, Punk Points was a text adventure game uh, I made in uh, the year 2000. Um, and it's basically uh, the premise of which is, is that you're a teenage uh, boy, you've just given yourself uh, a mohawk, and you're about to start uh, grade nine at the, the, uh, the kind of most conservative school in uh, North York, which no relation to my own experience at all. Um, but uh, 
basically, through the game, um, what, you, what you sort of aim to do on a, on a game level is um, do enough things that impress your uh, peers and piss off your teachers till you earn enough punk points to escape the suburbs. So that's the, uh, the, the gist of, of what was my very first game. Um, and, it, and it basically was inspired um, by my love of Infocom games back in the 80s, um, which I grew up with as a teenager. Uh, and, and a desire to sort of bring that sort of fantasy, like traditionally a fantasy sort of mode of, of, um, uh, of, of game playing into um, uh, sort of a semi-autobiographical kind of uh, context and frame. Um, now, uh, that was 2000. Um, this is uh, a game I uh, co-designed, um, but did not uh, sort of uh, drive. That was actually... Um, uh, Alex uh, Jansen at Pop Sandbox, who um, who sort of uh, was the the main producer and and, and co my co-designer on uh, Pipe Trouble. But basically, um, for those who weren't familiar, Pipe Trouble is um, uh, is a game that basically uh, sort of looks to model the tensions between these this guy here, uh, the farmer, and uh, the the your boss, who's the uh, who's the 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 natural gas. Um, kind of uh, owner on this side. So what you aim to do is um, lay, a, lay a pipe from this point here to this point down here, um, you know, uh, in, in, with a minimum of, of cost and, and, uh, and trouble. Uh, but as pipe trouble might indicate, um, it, it actually uh, very quickly devolves into uh, a troublesome situation. Um, you get leaks occasionally, uh, which uh, trouble the the, um, uh, the, the cattle, and actually start down here, a couple little tiny protesters start uh, sort of emerging. Um, and then uh, things can get even uh, more out of hand if you piss off the, the farmer enough, if it goes up to the, the higher levels here, um, uh, pipe bombers come out and actually uh, sort of uh, cause trouble. Um, now, um, it was, it, it was a really uh, fun game to work on because it had a kind of a clear model of like, uh, like a, a pretty much a, a sort of a sub-genre of uh, pi like, I guess, pipe-connecting uh, arcade-style uh, fun. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, it was able to model this, um, this very real tension that, that exists in, um, that, that, that's existed in sort of had a flashpoint around Weibo in, in Alberta and, and uh, the sort of protest in BC as well. And it's an ongoing, of course, uh, subject. Um, and uh, uh, people um, may or may not be aware of the kind of repercussions of, of, um, of this particular project. We uh, were written up in the, uh, in the Toronto Sun as being a publicly funded eco-terrorist game where you play the eco-terrorist. Um, uh, because they watched the trailer and didn't actually play the game, um, but uh, as a result, there was a there's a huge sort of uh, amount of um, discussion and controversy ar around it. Um, and by the end, three different premiers had weighed in on uh, what they thought of our of our little game. So um, it was a discussion. I mean, the discussion did actually um, sort of go off the rails to a certain extent, where it was uh, discussion about um, the 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 place of public funding in, in uh, point of view video games. Um, a, like a, a, a sort of situation that's been largely um, sort of uh, dealt with uh, for, for many decades in, in, in the case of 
the point of view documentaries that are funded publicly. But with, with games, it was definitely something um, new and frightening uh, for the right wing. So uh, it, it, it did uh, generate a certain amount of, of, um, of controversy around that issue. And, and it did uh, come around to the issue that we were interested in discussing or that we sort of made the game in order to sort of start discussion about, um, which was the natural gas controversy. So those are two of probably the six or seven games that um, I've made um, over the uh, past uh, 14 years or so. Um, now, uh, the, the other thing, uh, Kathleen mentioned some of the other things I've been doing uh, during my residency, um, uh, the Torontron the installation and uh, the fancy video game party. Um, but I, uh, I'm really excited today to be able to um, uh, bring in a, a couple of uh, folks that uh, I found really super inspiring over the years, um, Jonathan Mack and Mark Connery. Um, now, uh, I'm going to sort of get into a little bit about um, the, the, like how I came to know their work and how I came to know them. Um, but the, the, the main connection um, I see in both of them is that both of them go against the grain of what's expected in their discipline. Um, and uh, this has been a sort of a continuing sort of inspiration to me as someone who, who also, um, regardless of, of the, uh, regardless of the, the norms of, of, of any sort of um, uh, medium, I, I tend to sort of uh, find the most enjoyment and inspiration in sort of uh, pushing against it, whether it be um, uh, writing pulp books in, a, in a, the high art of a novel, uh, or, or trying to write realistic kind of uh, autobiographical work in a video game context, context, which is sort of the, you know, traditional uh, home for fantasy and science fiction. So, um, so yeah, I'd just like to start by uh, showing you guys a couple of things from Mark. So I'm going to just sort of go through some of his work here um, without uh, a lot of context. This is, um, this is from a, um, his forthcoming book with 2D Cloud. So um, when I first uh, encountered um, Mark's work, it was uh, at a zine fair. Uh, I think maybe the uh, Toronto Small Press Book Fair. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was uh, uh, quite a, a pretentious young scribe of uh, maybe uh, 20 or 21 uh, who had a, a collection of short stories called Joe Blow Godot. Uh, which was uh, two dollars uh, for the having, and uh, yeah, and it was uh, um, a, a photocopied, um, digest-sized, sort of stapled, sort of uh, self-published collection. Um, and and Mark came by, and I believe you were maybe sixteen or seventeen at the time, a young a young kid, and showed me these comics. Um, 
uh, which made, you th made, me, made me think he was a little crazy, frankly. It's possible. Yeah. It's probably so, true. Yeah. But, uh... So um, what, what I found, though, is that um, uh, o over, over the course of our, our, of our friendship um, is that uh, it's, it started really uh, to coalesce this idea around um, uh, the idea that uh, interesting is more important than good in terms of quality, um, in terms of uh, proficiency. So, um, and this is something. This is something that I've that I found is that. Thank you. Notes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see what's next. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like the, the what I found was um, the technical proficiency I, I saw in some people uh, in in the community uh, was was admirable, but it didn't have that sort of uh, spark of inspiration that that your work had. Um, so yeah, um, so I guess I guess yeah. I mean, how how uh, would you say your um, your work has has sort of developed or changed since since those early days, if at all? I, I uh, <laughs> that's a terrible question. Uh, I'm just uh, right now. I'm just in the middle of releasing a book that's uh, a compilation of work that's actually from those very days and over the last 20 years um, and including work that I gave you at the very time. Um, yeah, I'm always more interested in interesting than uh, technically proficient. Um, um, one of the things when I first met Jim uh, was uh, I think I might have got a discount, maybe a dollar discount for like the two dollar. I didn't book. do a, a, a straight up trade. I gave you like a minor discount. I think I got a, a I think I got a minor discount, yeah. um, or maybe I got a trade if the 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 deal was that I had to write a letter um, criticizing Jim's uh, stories, and uh, and I did. I I wrote a I think a fairly lengthy uh, letter. Um, and probably fairly detailed. Uh, it was, and, yeah, really insightful, well. insightful uh, uh, criticism, um, which is, you know, the main reason I was writing and publishing at the time was to gather around a kind of um, group of people uh, that that could give me decent feedback and help me grow as a as a writer, which which it did a lot. Yeah, I I mean I don't remember exactly what. Uh, at the time, I was publishing a lot. I started publishing zines um, in high school uh, about a year before I was going to a very funky alternative high school uh, where I was encouraged. Uh, I had wanted to do mini comics and alternative underground comics for a few years at that point. And uh, I was given access to the photocopier there. And uh, I just started doing it at that point. And uh, I believe that was the first uh, Toronto Small Press Fair that I went to um, at, Vic at Victoria College. Yeah, it was at Victoria College. And, uh, yeah, it was at Victoria College, uh, which was a beautiful space to be at and uh, um, having a lot of fun at it and kind of thrilled out of my mind. <laughs> um, but uh, it was just very exciting to 
be meeting all these independent publishers and people doing all these things that I didn't know what uh, what the hell to make of uh, most of it. Oh. And uh, meeting somebody, and there, there were also a lot of people who've been around for a long time doing this stuff. And so Jim was one of the younger people compared to a lot of the zine fairs uh, uh, that are happening now and since Jim was on the uh, more junior end of things yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the small press fair. So, so um, with, uh, yeah, with, with this book coming out, um, maybe uh, I, I'm curious about uh, your, the, if you want to tell people a little bit about your relationship with Mark Bell and, and how that sort of, like how the progression of the, of the book, because it's been a long time in the, in the sort of in the making. Yeah, well, I've been doing the zines for, uh, or doing the comics for uh, almost 25 years. And so the work is um, just shy of 25 years of work, because 23 and a half or, or something like that. Um, and uh, the editor, uh, Mark Bell, who's a, a very fine cartoonist, um, has edited it. Um, and he's. Uh, been collecting the work uh, and it has edited it for a couple of different anthologies uh, over the last 10 years. Um, and he started putting it together in earnest uh, about a year ago. And um, I've known Mark for just shy of 20 years. <laughs> I moved into an, uh, an apartment, a room in Montreal that uh, had only been occupied by underground cartoonists <laughs> on the plateau. Um, 2319 Saint Dominique, uh, very oddly, it was only in the middle room. Uh, everybody else was indie rockers who lived in that apartment. It's a very strange fact. Um, but everybody who lived in the middle room was the cloud room. Um, it was all, and I'd had pen pals who'd lived in that room, and it was a very strange fact. Anyway, he had to move out in the middle of the month when I moved there. We were both being published in Exclaim magazine when they used to run comics. And I met him in a comics jam in Montreal. And he had to move out because he was so broke. Um, and so I took over his uh, room in the apartment because <laughs> he needed the $85. Um, so that's how we got to be friends. <laughs> anyway, that's <laughs> the fortunes of a cartoonist, yeah, an underground cartoonist. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean... I and, so Sorry. anyway, it's been a real labor of love for him. Um, I'll get a lot of the glory, but uh, he's done the heavy lifting. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, um, and I feel the same way when, when Mark and I have talked about uh, your influence um, is, is that, um, I mean, his stuff uh, as a, you know, comparative measure is, is, is uh, more technically proficient than, than your stuff is. And at the same time kind of has the same, uh, I think, I don't know if he coined the term psychodulia or psychodulia, or if it was if it was you or or, but that that uh, school of uh, of cartoonia. Yeah, I think he coined it. Yeah. So so and 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 there's a you know a whole kind of community and scene around that, but but to me I find it very interesting in that um, uh, I find your work um, to be really like uh, I, I kind of when I introduce people to your work. I kind of remember my first impressions of it, which uh, you know, 
like just it was alien to me and and because it didn't have that technical proficiency that I associated with you know talent and stuff then it took me it took me a long time not a long time but you know until I got the letter from you and and I was like oh this guy is like I could see it in in your work here and there but it was it was uh it was it was hard for me to put together and then um, and then it was like, you know, it, it was a kind of a, a revelation to me because I started to, to sort of think differently about art and start, started to look th for different things in art rather than, um, you know, the, the, those sort of basic kind of polished sort of aspects of them because we're surrounded by work that is um, technically proficient but, but fairly vacant on a creativity level. And I feel like yours, you're, you have the opposite sort of um, situation. So I think people like myself and Mark really look at like what, what you do is, is inspirational and we, you know, we, we kind of try to, I, I sometimes I look at it from a perspective of um, orbits. Like there's, um, there's, there's people that I, that I talk to and, and I sort of, uh, I try to articulate what I really like about your work um, to them, and then um, you know, like I, it's like a, a, a certain different types of orbits, and it, at the same time, sometimes you'll introduce me to work that I can't, I, I can't understand at first, and then, but I take it on faith, and based on on the on our previous sort of um, our, our previous sort of history, that there's something there, and and I spend more time with it, and I often find that I get, I get something out of it that I would have initially just dismissed it as like, you know, crazy or, you know, not very interesting or too, too, too rough or too raw and that kind of thing. I think I, think I recognized at an early point, um, I really love making art. Um, is that the, oh, we want to be amateurs. Um, I decided to be an amateur artist. Um, an amateur comes from Somebody out there probably knows the etymology. It comes from love and the wanting to do, uh, the love of doing. Um, and I just realized I also wasn't that technically proficient. Um, uh, my two much older brothers were uh, professional commercial artists, and I just saw how hard they worked and doing sometimes very brilliant work and doing work that sometimes they were very unhappy doing. And I just thought, oh, I'm... Not very good at doing it, <laughs> and I would rather just do things I wanted to do. Um, but I, I would and and I just um, that sometimes the quirks were just better anyway, and uh, I was never gonna I was never gonna get there in terms of the the proficiency, and so why not just embrace the 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 quirk and do it as as it came. Uh, I mean, the other thing is also just the, I mean, a lot of my other influences uh, were not, uh, I mean, I have a deep love of visual art, uh, but also uh, literature, uh, philosophy, um, re religious thought, um, stuff that falls political thinking, like stuff that doesn't, like, it doesn't add up to, slick art <laughs> it doesn't work in that way so um um and my technique is not that great <laughs> so, so is this something like where you you would actively sort of shy away from getting your technical i guess chops better like if we lived in a world where you could just like eat a pill and then suddenly 
you know, you were the you were the shit. Would you do that, or is that do you think do you feel like that would sort of muddy the message? N- no. You wouldn't take the pill, or you would take the pill. No, you would not take. If I if I could be better at doing a lot of stuff, I would be better at doing it. But I but I want to be a lot better at a lot of things. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's, I just, there's I just too many this. things. There's too many things I want to be good at. So I have a lot of different interests. Okay. Yeah, because I know it's just from my work that like if you get too good at something, it's that that can kind of blind you from what's you know like what your work is truly about. Or I didn't I didn't know that was like. But I think I mean one of the things I admire. I mean I don't know your work very well. Um, at all, um, but I, I mean, one of the things I, I admire about Jim's work is that he does jump around, and kind of—I mean, kind of—when you get start getting good at something, you start doing something else. <laughs> yeah. I admire that. <laughs> I, I'm going to talk about that. Yeah, the the the, the thing that like um, yeah that I admire about about your work to some extent is that uh, I think. It's it's hard to um, it's it's hard to keep doing something uh, that um, yeah that that is attackable in in the way that that your stuff is um, not that you know you you not that you have to deal with people attacking you all the time but I feel like there's there's this there's this um, vulnerability to it because because it is. Um, it is sort of like criti- or people can criticize it for for it being rough, but at the same time, that's the stuff you tend to love the most yourself. Oh yeah, and I also just li- I like a lot of I like a lot of primitive art. Um, a lot of my favorite art is primitive, um, so why not <laughs> too primitive? Um, I was going to say, and just in, in thinking about this talk and and trying to f- think about things. Um, I came across a review uh, of a recent comic. One, uh, oh, it was one that we the first one of the first images you put up. Uh, there was a review that uh, it was from a comics anthology, Irene Number Three. It's a comics anthology. Um, the image doesn't matter very much. Um, a, a lot of people who are in the anthology are younger artists and mostly coming out of uh, art school and illustration school and comic schools. There's a comics college in the US, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, um, and I've been doing collaborations with a couple people there. Um, in the review, and, and for like two minutes, I was really annoyed by this comment. And then I was like, oh, that's great. But it referred to the work as a palate cleanser. And I was like, oh, that's like a good thing. <laughs> I think it was partly also people are doing a lot of stuff on computer, and it's really dark. Like, there's a lot of fill in, like, and no disrespect for people doing stuff on computers. But it's also they're doing, like, because it's on, like, it's published in a, on paper, and so people are, like, doing fill ins, and it gets really, like, muddy. <laughs> And I'm doing just simple line art, and anyway, mm-hmm. they called mm-hmm. me a palette, and I was like, "Oh, that's it." <laughs> yeah, one of the things that uh, um, that interests me about about your work is is they uh, when you when you have been sort of like uh, making forays into galleries and, and things like that. Um, there's like uh, you know, it's it's works like this, which are like you know, not as not black and white, but 
but have the, the a lot of the same kind of aesthetics and that kind of thing. So when you when you're thinking about like obviously the the zine work and and the kind of um, you know the independently published stuff is is like can be just purely um, you know what what you're thinking of for yourself in some ways. But do you think differently of the gallery stuff or or um, yeah how how is that sort of like transition or or not transition, but like, is it a is it an adaptation? Is it like, what what are your some of your thoughts on that? Uh, the the few paintings that are the three paintings that are being shown, um, uh, I purposely made work that would work as paintings for the gallery space that people might want to have, and that could only work as paintings, <laughs> and that people might want to buy. <laughs> and that would also just, that we're also using uh, glosses and colors and uh, although there's a fair bit of line work and things in that, uh, there's color and uh, reflection and depth and uh, they wouldn't work as uh, drawings. Right, right. <laughs> Black and white drawings. Mm -hmm. um, and wouldn't work in a book. <laughs> they would only... Um, the show was called Might, Ma Might, sorry. Might Match the Couch, and it was, uh, and I actually painted it all uh, on a couch <laughs> in low light, and I thought it's going to go in places where it'd be kind of in the set, I, I hid it in the setting where I thought it would be people who might actually buy the art uh, kind of <laughs> in the kind of lighting that, that it would be seen in <laughs> or experienced in. I'm very interested in how people actually experience art rather than how it should be seen in. Right. Um, so, uh, which I think is also a, a common concern that you have mm -hmm. in like the way that you test your art. Uh, I, we do it in different ways, but uh, the actual experience of the art mm -hmm. uh, is one that I think we have a common concern of. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my concern with um with my stuff is, is I, I don't have, I've never had that impression a lot of, um, a lot of people do, a lot of artists do with like, I'm done, now it's ready to, to be in the world and uh, I don't care what people think of it. I've, I've always had a process of, of um, you know, we, even with my novels of showing it to, you know, sometimes 10 or 20 people over the course of the revisions to kind of get, um, feedback into into um, uh, into sort of tunes subtlety sometimes in a science fiction jargon context. If something is not coming across, I turn up the volume. Like I, I, I think of things in a in a in a very usability way, I suppose. Uh, in terms of art, as as obviously, you know, you're going to uh, artists are going to um, at some point just say it's done. And and it's entered the world, but but for me the threshold is m much different, I think, than than um, than than artists who just sort of um, you know as soon as it's finished they they just want it to be out in the world. I like I like um, yeah. To me, it just seems like I I have intentionality with a lot of the work, and I want to kind of test my hypothesis that it's that's correct in some ways. So um, or at least somewhat correct. I mean, you're not ever going to have the exact same reaction with, with everybody. So, um, but I, I wanted to move on to, uh, to Jonathan uh, for a bit, but feel free to pipe in and 
dominate the conversation if you want to. Um, so uh, so I, I got to know Jonathan. Uh, I did a games column for uh, two years for iWeekly. Um, uh, and they were interested in me doing a, a column. Uh, originally, they wanted it to be a technology column, and I was like, no, I'm kind of, I'd be interested in it if it was a games column. So they eventually were, were okay with that. And, um, uh, and, you know, I was just getting, kind of introduced to games after maybe a 10 year um, uh, sabbatical, I don't know, a 10 year period of where I didn't play games at all. Um, Mostly because probably between the ages of about 16 and 26, I was, you know, making zines and books and, um, you know, going to punk rock shows and stuff like that. So I wasn't sort of getting into, uh, I wasn't sort of, I, you know, and the, I guess the other factor was just not owning a computer or consoles. I was, um, you know, pretty much trying not to work as much as I could so I could focus on writing and that kind of thing. So... Um, there was like a, a, a decade or so in there where I didn't um, pay attention to games at all. Uh, although prior to that and immediately after that, I w I've been like really um, hugely immersed. And, and part of that was just due to a fan of one of my books introducing me to a bunch of games, um, namely I think Grim Fandango and uh, Half-Life, um, that, that really sort of uh, showed me what I was missing in it to a certain extent. So I had this sort of interest, but you know, I, 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 when I approached I about doing this column, it was with the idea that I would be covering mostly corporate products. I, I sort of assumed, and certainly at the time, um, there was uh, not much of an indie scene. This was, you know, around 2000, 2004 or so. Um, and uh, that certainly... Um, that I was aware of locally, um, and and you know not much that I could find internationally. What I did find, um, w you know, was a lot of uh, people who were kind of um, indie, but in in the sense of like indie until um, my portfolio game gets me a job at a big studio. Kind of like the men the mentality was kind of more of a minor league kind of team. Uh, indies as minor league rather than mi indies as uh, oppositional to a corporate kind of product. So. Um, you know, I, I, I came from a lot of different um, disciplines uh, like uh, publishing and, and film and music that all had a strong indie and indie in an, imp in an oppositional sense um, kind of perspective. So for me, I was, I, was, um, uh, I was prepared just to kind of focus on what was interesting and new about the corporate uh, video game world. But then... Um, my friend Sue Moffat, who I knew through zines and, and uh, the music scene, um, she uh, told me about this game called N, which was uh, uh, produced by two um, uh, developers in, in Toronto. Um, and I played it and I loved it. And it's, uh, it's a really simple um, concept. You're, you're running around picking up um, uh, pieces of gold as an androgynous ninja. And uh, it's a really, it's a really, I, well, I called it a perfect pop song of a, of a game. It was really um, uh, super, super stylish, very fun in the way that arcade games were fun in the 80s, um, in, as opposed to the kind of more, um, you know, in-depth, multi-controller kind of um, uh, AAA games. And best of all, when I got to meet and interview them for the column, they, they reflected to me a kind of um, the first example in Toronto that I'd seen of people who were um, 
indie uh, by choice. They were indie in, in the sense that they, they didn't really want um, jobs at the big studios because they didn't want to be doing one thing all day. They, they wanted to kind of craft the, their games uh, and have, have sort of input into you know, how they looked, how they played, how they were distributed, um, all those things, and almost an artisanal kind of approach to game making, which was really, um, which is really great, and that I, it, it immediately kind of, um, you know, woke me up to the fact that there were sort of like-minded people in the in the games community, um, and uh, they introduced me in turn to to Jonathan, um, and Jonathan's first game. Um, I'm just going to actually throw it up on the screen here. It's called Everyday Shooter. Um, sorry, this is not his actual first game, but this is the f first game I sort of um, came across. a little bit about where your headspace was at and and, um, and what the some of the inspirations were behind uh, Everyday Shooter? Um, so, I guess I guess to start to, to explain that, I have to start with the game I, I wrote previous to this. Um, so previous to this, I, I just graduated uh, from school and um, I decided oh, I'm going to make video games um, instead of getting a real job. And so I worked really hard to like try to create um, this thing that was super meaningful, but then was also had this sort of commercial, like I would be able to charge people money for it. Um, and, I, and I just sort of worked myself into this really dank, heady, like just this weird headspace. Um, and, and, and then I decided to sort of throw all that out and, and work on something much simpler and, I guess, um, truer to who I am. Um, like, basically not trying so hard um, to create art, basically. Um, and so, okay, so this game is like, it's, um, it's divided up into eight, I call them tracks or levels. Um, it's supposed to be like a music album, but you play through it. Um, and so the, the first one I did um, I decided to sort of just basically pretend that I knew nothing about video games. I mean, I had been writing video games for probably nine, eight, eight, I don't know, like ten years. Um, but I was like, well, I'm not getting anywhere. I obviously know nothing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take, you know, my favorite game at the time and I'm just going to clone it. I'm just going to learn sort of like how if you're learning to play guitar, you might... You know, you might like learn an 
someone else's song first just to like practice or whatever. Um, and, and so that's what I did with that one. And, and, and that first level was based on a game called Every Extend. Um, it ended up changing a lot. Um, like it, it became its own thing through that process. Could you, could you give people a little bit of context around sort of the Kent Cho and, and abstract oh, shooters yeah. and stuff? Um, yeah, so, okay, so in, in around 2003, 2004, um, there's this guy in Japan, Kent Cho. Um, I don't know his real name. I think Kent Cho in Japanese means like, it's like a play on KFC or something, like Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, uh, and he has a real job. Uh, he's like a database programmer or something. Um, but on the side, he makes these really amazing video games, um, and he releases them as freeware. Freeware is like, um, it's, it's just free to download. He doesn't charge money for it. Um, and w what's weird about him is he doesn't, like, I I've asked him, I was like, why don't you, like, quit your job? Like, your games are so popular. Just quit your job and make games full time. He's like, no, I like my job. I actually find it interesting, and uh, I just like to make games on the side. So it it comes from a very like pure place. It's not affected by um, by the market or whatever. Um, and and so his style is very uh, um, vectory. I want to say programmer art, but I don't mean that in like he's not an artist kind of way. But I just mean the art comes out of programming algorithms. It's the algorithms. Um, that you kind of see, it's like mathematical formulas. Um, and prior to me seeing that, so I, I'm, I was introduced to Kent Cho through Regan Mare, who did that end game that Jim was talking about. And at, just prior to that, I had thought that the only way to make a video game was, you know, you had to, you had to hire an artist and you had to hire like a team to, to, make, to make the thing. And then I saw Kent Cho's work and I thought, I can do that, I can totally do that. And so, what you see in, in this game, Everyday Shooter, is sort of um, the second pass of me exploring that idea. The first pass would have been the game I made before this. Um, but it's just, so everything you see is, is, is basically just mathematical formulas visualized, I guess, a very crude way to put it. Um, it wasn't the sort of thing where I would open up Photoshop or, or go into my sketchbook and like sketch it and scan it and put it in. Um, so yeah. And I guess see, back then it was unusual for one person to make a video game, or especially to make a video game and, and like have people buy it. <laughs> yeah, because eventually this came out on the PS3, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and Kenta Cho was someone who was making games on his own that I really respected, and he was writing his own music. He was just doing the whole thing, so that was a major inspiration. Yeah, and I mean that's like from from the outside is as, as uh, you know, the, someone's looking at it from a context of, of like film or whatever. It's the auteur model um, that was often sort of referenced in in relation to this work. Um, and uh, yeah, and and I mean the the um, there's uh, but you're also sort of as well as this sort of um, uh, Kenta Cho influence. You're also talking about Steve Rankin as well. Some uh, yeah, so it's okay. So um, where should I start? Okay, I'll start from the Steve Reich angle. Okay, so he Steve Reich made this thing called uh, Electric Counterpoint, um, which I really love, uh, and it's it's this thing where he recorded like um, 
10 guitars just overdub looping on top of each other. And then um, the 11th guitarist, or maybe it was the 10th guitarist, I, I don't remember the exact number, but the 11th guitarist would come in and, and solo on top of it. And that's, and that's how the piece comes together. And so with this, what I was trying to do, so in, in the background, there's, um, in the musical background, there's like one guitar track playing. And then every time you shoot something, it, it, instead of like an explosion sound, it'll play like a guitar riff or, or some, some sort of musical phrase. And the idea was um, to sort of follow that Steve, that electric counterpoint model of there's this sort of background music and then you're the 11th guitar player solo, soloing on top of it. Yeah, and I mean, um, like, I mean, you, you compose the music for this as well. Um, and I know, like, um, uh, like you've, you've, you also sort of pursue that. Do you, do you like, um, take music or sort of other more established kind of mediums as seriously as you do games? And do you think there's a relationship between sort of the fragility of games and, and you know, the, the, the focus you give them versus uh, music? Or do you see any interconnection there? Um, I guess I would treat them the same. Um, the only difference being that video games is something that I don't feel like we really understand yet, like that we built a vocabulary to really say important things. Um, and that's sort of, you know, there's a lot of video games that are being made that try very hard to um, express something very heady, but what I'm trying to do is just sort of explore like the, the base level, like. Like, what are the words? What, how do I say mommy and daddy? Can I walk? You know, that sort of thing, like if right. I was a baby. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, I mean, but otherwise, I, I feel like, yeah, there, I forgot what your original question is. Was it whether like, or not like the, the, the medium, the context of the medium changes how you uh, approach it? Like, or, or I guess the social status of each of the mediums. <laughs> okay, so well, social status. Yeah. I, I'm, I tend to be very embarrassed when I tell people that I make video games because you tend to think of, um, I guess, dudes shooting other dudes in the face in right. the Middle East, right. uh, which I don't super associate with. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, some people get a lot of status for that. Yeah. Sorry, is it okay if I jump in? Yeah, I just, there, we we met a couple of days ago to talk about this talk, and and Jim made a an interesting comment, and just because I've always kind of approached the the high low thing from a kind of sociological perspective, and Jim made an interesting comment which I thought was was a worthwhile one, and it's a different one, and one I think is one I'm more attracted to these days, is um, the low being a visceral one, right, right, and the the, the effective or the the <laughs> what actually grabs you, right. and the, and that doesn't and and you know just yeah and that <laughs> what because I you know I remember seeing the Ramones when I was eight years old after but it's all good, but it also can be high like uh, you know I remember hearing uh, Bach and being like whoa <laughs> like just. But you know whatever you know whatever you know and just look and actually just seeing the video game just now because I, I had looked at it before and just seeing it on the screen now I was like wow that is so beautiful <laughs> <laughs> like, like, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, I want to leave now and just go and play the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Sorry, friends. yeah, <laughs> the the high low thing is is this constant uh, inspiration to me because I find myself inevitably drawn to um, to doing either um, like whenever I'm in a in a in a high culture context, I want to do something low, and whenever whenever I'm in a low con culture context again not something this is not a kind of thing I'm projecting onto it from a like I look down on it it's just like I, I'm aware by being in the world and a pretty average person I pick up oh yeah video games are looked down upon I, I, I do sometimes get some flack from people in the in the games world who are um, upset with me for talking about uh, it being in the cultural gutter, um, and them sort of pointing to, oh, look at all the advances games have made, and and to me it's just like, no, I I, I like that it's in the gutter, I, I, but it is still like kind of looked down upon by the majority of people, like, um, but I don't think that that's like to me as an artist, that's an opportunity um, to to sort of um, open people's minds um, when when something. Like, as I was saying before, I, I tend to do stuff that's kind of more realist or political or, you know, in, in, in a medium that people don't consider, um, you know, worthy of those types of, 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 of thoughts. Um, and I tend to do stuff that's fairly trivial in, um, in the novel format. So it's, it's a constant kind of, um, you know, balance uh, in, in, those two, in those two senses. So, um, but, um, yeah, I, I wanted to, uh, to sort of... You know, in the with the idea of going against the grain um, of 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 your of your kind of culture or whatever. Um, uh, in 2010, was it the balloon rant? Uh, something like that. A couple years ago, um, there's this convention that uh, uh, that the at the at the game developers conference that a bunch of developers get up and talk about for five ten minutes about something. They rant about something. And so Jonathan was invited after um, Everyday Shooter was released to kind of uh, come and talk about, or to, to, to do a rant. And so maybe you can talk about what happened. Yeah, so GDC, the Game Developers Conference, just to set the scene, it's very, um, it, it's very, I don't know, it's very industry, it's very business. Um, well, there's the business side of it, like people are trying to get deals and stuff. And then, um, it, and then there's sort of talks that happen, but they're usually of a technical sense, like, boy, how did you model that rock in that Middle East game? Um, <laughs> or, you know, like stuff like that. Or even like how to market your game or how to get the most press. Um, and there's also a lot of... Um, there can be a lot of negativity. I haven't been in, in the past few years, um, but back then there was, I don't know, I guess I sensed, sensed a lot of like, maybe anger or something. Not, maybe not ang maybe anger is not the right word, but like an underlying current of violence. <laughs> um, people, people had things to rant about. Uh, and, and so, you know, like I was, I was getting really stressed out about this. Um, it was just a five minute thing I had to do but I realized I didn't really have anything to rant about. Like, it was pretty good. Like, things were on the up and up. People were receptive to this new thing called indie games where one, like, one or two people can make a video game. So instead of doing a rant, I decided to um, 
I, I had this song I'd written that was kind of of a happy nature. <laughs> and then uh, I went to, uh, in San Francisco, I went to Chinatown and, and bought a bunch of balloons and enlisted some help, some friends to help. Um, and when my turn came up, came up, we played the music and I just threw balloons in the air um, and I threw them you know, all over the audience and, and just had a good time. So that, that was sort of my rant, <laughs> which was everything is okay, guys. Just chill out. And I mean, were you, um, so, so, yeah, I mean, and, and, and did that kind of, um, was that hard for you to do, uh, to decide to, to, to break the format? Was it something that you're drawn to doing? Or what, like, how does it fit in terms of like, like, is that, is that more of a kind of a exception for you? Or do you like going against the grain? Or is that, what, what's, yeah. I, th I think it's because of how, like, because of how my work came to be. Like, I didn't, I guess, okay, so the thing with making video games is it's, like, back then, and I guess sort of now, too, it's really hard to make a video game because you have to, like, it's all, it's all technical. You have to know how to program a computer. And then after you learn how to program a computer, you have to know, like, math, basically, to, to make everything work. So all the games back then um, uh, were very technical in nature. And I think that's why we saw a lot of sim games when you know when we were growing up, like, um, like especially Will Wright and Sid Sid Meier, um, very systems oriented, like because that's like very simulation heavy, um, and I didn't identify with that. Um, so it's just like, and I didn't identify with, you know, forming a, a giant team or like a big studio to make, a, this blockbuster games. Um, and, and so this was sort of like that. It's just, it just felt natural. Like it's just, it's almost like I would go to GC and be like, what are they doing? That's probably like, probably not it. Maybe we should look the other way and see what's there. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's how it fits in there. Cool. And talking about like, um, yeah, larger teams and stuff like that. Um, it Which seems like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, yeah. So so Sound Shapes um, is is the more recent game that that's come out. Um, I'm gonna play the launch trailer because it'll show people quickly sure. um, some of the visual uh, stuff in it. Forgive, uh, we were looking at this before, and and John was like uh, embarrassed by all the uh, branding and and like. Oh, here we go. And uh, stuff like uh, this, this sort of blurb, other blurb.
So, one of the interesting Today's things special. that I've been um, uh, just sort of hang out with you in that that period of time, um, like the the um, uh, the amount of stress and and whatnot uh, around that kind of the game, as you know. Um, it, and and now hearing about your current projects, which where you're kind of um, uh, kind of going going back to the kind of uh, auteur or, or single person kind of uh, model, at least in this stage. Um, yeah, I guess in, like to a lot of people that would be um, going back or reversing or like the, not the way things should go. It should get even bigger. Like um, yeah, yeah. you know. So I, I was wondering if you could talk about that. Um, okay, well, just, just to, I'm, I'm not sure if it was obvious, but that last one wasn't a game that I made by myself. It was a co collaboration. It started off as a collaboration with um, a local musician in Toronto called, uh, his name is Shahan, or I Am Robot and Proud. Um, and, and it's sort of, uh, it, I don't know what happened, but somehow it ballooned into this, like, 20-person affair sort of swallowing up other, or maybe not swallowing, but begging other video game studios in Toronto to help us, like basically calling in our friends and being like, oh, we're working on this video game, help. Um, so yeah, so it was a, it was a very different time. Um, and it, working on it, there wasn't a lot of time to sort of think in the same way that I got to think with Everyday Shooter. Um, it just didn't, it felt more like, um, it felt more like building a bridge, like it felt more like production instead of, hey, I'm, I'm creating this this really personal piece. Um, and so that, that sort of motivated the move back to working solo. Um, that's not to say that I think that's not to say that all, you know, big production things are, are incapable of sort of expressing a vision, but for me, I have to go, I feel like I have to go back to my roots to sort of understand that a bit better before I can blow it up. Um, should I decide to blow it up? <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's sort of currently what my thinking is. Yeah, and, and I think like um, I've had a similar kind of, uh, you know, type of uh, experience with, with the filmmaking um, that I've done. And as Mark mentioned earlier, this, this urge to kind of, um, this urge to kind of be uh, new at something and like uh, not that great at it um, is like, because um, it, it it allows you to make mistakes, and sometimes they're really interesting mistakes. And it allows you to kind of see it with fresh eyes and, and, and the like. Um, and, and it can kind of, um, and it makes you kind of open and vulnerable to new kind of, uh, uh, you know, creative expression. So, I mean, this is, a, this is an example of something that's kind of the opposite of that, where it's, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of the la latest thing we've done, which is very, um, uh, it's, it's pretty slick, so I'll show it to you. But it's 2025, guys. 
It's not enough for video games to look amazing. It's not enough for video games to sound amazing. Video games have to feel amazing. And that's where the next-gen haptic interface comes in. The player is going to feel every punch. The player is going to feel every caress, just as if he were in the game world. You're not just making video game cables here, people. You are making history. Well, an electronics factory, what the hell kind of summer job is that? Is that the one that's so big you can see it from space? Yep, that's the one. Special economic zone. That's what they actually call it. No labor laws. No workers' rights, no environmental protection, no oversight at all. No oversight has its perks. They've been training soldiers with it for years. It's really the missing link in muscle memory. I mean, you feel it, you live it, you learn it. Can you imagine what happens when this hits the streets? I mean, we're talking driving, shooting, fighting. Any skill you have in the game world, you also have in the real world. I mean, how sane is that? I just don't want you to get hurt. Things happen in factories like that. But for crying out loud, it's a bloody sweatshop. Well, maybe I like to sweat. Ah! Anyway, Dad, it's not like your job isn't dangerous. All those hapheads running around. Jesus Christ, Maxine, you're so goddamn stubborn. I just don't know where you get it from. <laughs> okay. I'm so sorry, Maxine. I know that it's with an accident like this. It wasn't an accident. It was a haphead. Yeah, so that, that is something, I mean, I, I met uh, and started working with those guys in 2007, and we were making, um, making movies with whatever cameras we had and uh, with uh, the minimal uh, film knowledge we had, and uh, over the course of the seven years, we've, we've sort of refined and become better and sort of have broader networks of people that are interested in collaborating with us to the point where we can, where we can do something, um, something with uh, considerable polish. Um, what we do find is, is like, what I, what, or what I do find is, is personally that there is a little bit of, um, um, like, once it reaches a kind of level of polish, it, it, some of the challenge is gone, and it's not as exciting. Um, but um, at the same time, uh, it, it, it also kind of, uh, you know, allows us to, 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 to have, a, I guess, a, a broader audience that is not as distracted by the production value <laughs> as in, in our first... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, and that's the thing that I find really interesting is that I, I'm drawn to rough um, 
stuff that has a spark of, of originality far more than something that has, you know, to come back to our original kind of um, thing. Where and, and, and how I kind of replicate that kind of roughness in, in my own work is often by jumping into another medium I have no place in being. So, um, so but what I find is um, with video games, it's actually, um, that, like, because it, it doesn't... Um, because it's always changing and, and the technology is always kind of advancing, it's kind of a moving target that, you know, um, if I might have, you know, like not that I ha have achieved much polish at all in the video game world, but it represents this potentially moving target that I could continually be kind of working towards. So it's one of the things that draws me to it. Yeah, and I, I, think, um, I think we always think of video games as this, just like this other uh, medium that you can work in, but it's much more than that. It's not, because like with, I guess, film, books, um, music, uh, it, it all has this sort of uh, uh, linear authorship. I don't, I don't know what you'd call it. It's like author-propelled and it's linear. Um, so what you see next depends on what, you know, what, whatever the author thinks you should see next. But in a video game, um, and, and to speak more broadly, in, in anything interactive and in interactive works, it's it's driven by uh, the viewer, it's or the participant, um, and that that kind of changes everything. Um, and that, I think that's why it's gonna like I don't even in a hundred years I don't know if we're really gonna be able to understand this thing um, the way we understand film and and books and st stuff like that. Oh, we're getting into the big philosophical debate with, <laughs> with five minutes to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, good point. And, and I still want to be, I be, wanna be able to, to take some questions. So, um, no, 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 that's... Because I have a profound disagreement about that one. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, the bar afterwards, yeah. yes. So, um, but the one, the one last thing I wanted to show was in relation to that, like um, one of the things I've been doing at the, at the AGO is, is um, this creative work, um, which is called the, uh, the Tour Guide, uh, a playful fiction, which kind of merges some of my, um, the things I've learned with film and the people that I've worked with in film, um, specifically an actress, uh, uh, Rachel McMillan. Um, uh, into uh, a little project. Um, I'd like to show you a little clip from... Um so this is shot on a GoPro, kind of first-person perspective. Um You must be here for our tour. Well, there doesn't seem to be anyone else here, so let's get started. First of all, welcome to the AGO. Why don't we start in our European collection? Right this way. You picked a nice quiet time to visit the AGO. I always like this time of week. It's quite serene. Would you like to visit our Laidlaw Gallery or our Leonard Gallery? 
So as you see here, um, this is a, so this is the interactive portion of it. So uh, it's full motion video. Um, pay no attention to the kitchen staff. Would you like to see um, the Leonard or the Laidlaw Gallery? But basically, uh, she gives you two explicit choices here. Would you like here. to see the Leonard or the Laidlaw Gallery? But if you've been paying attention, would you like to you see, can the see Leonard this part back here? Or the Laidlaw Gallery is a third uh, implicit choice. Would you? So let's choose that. Oh, um, excuse me. Um, we don't usually do tours back here. Uh, okay, well, the AGO has over 1.5 million visitors a year, which requires a constant supply of flooring to replace the worn out tiles. Oh, and do you see this design here? It's uh, silk screened on. It's sort of a, an homage to the 1950s wave of rustic Canadiana. Okay, and we'll just go through. Oh, this is where the day-to-day -day dishware is kept. The formal dishware is kept under lock and key. This equipment was installed in 1985. is made of steel. And so we have offices and oh the last year's artist in residence did a one-act play in this freezer, which you could only view from the security cameras. At least we think it was a one-act play. <laughs> This is the kitchen staff's wardrobe, which is not allowed to leave the premises, of course. There's a number of places in the AGO where you need special permission for more than two ounces of water, so we go through a lot of these. Well, that concludes our tour of the kitchen. Hope you enjoyed it. She brings you then back to the, the same. Would you like to see the Leonard or the Laidlaw Gallery? So she brings you back to the same uh, nexus each time. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a kind of a way to explore that sort of uh, full motion video, choose your own adventure. Um, but with, I, I, I sort of enjoy the, the idea that people can uh, feel like they, you know, they, they can kind of discover these implicit choices and, and sort of, uh, you know, be, get taken on an impromptu tour around the backstage of the AGO. So, um, yeah, so that's uh, hopefully something that will be, uh, be coming out fairly soon. Uh, anyway, um, so I don't know if you guys uh, had any sort of final remarks before we open it up for questions or anything? Questions? Shall we? Are we uh, got a couple minutes there? Yeah, okay, great. If
this isn't fully formed, but I wanted to give other people a chance to think about their questions. Um, you've all chosen to work in mediums that mostly I associate with, with children and with young people, comics, video games, and I just wondered if that affects your material or if, if you want to reflect on what, if there's anything in particular that appeals to you about working on in forms that are associated with young people and kids? Are you calling us babies? Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, I guess I hadn't realized that. It's, a, it's almost like if you were to say to me, oh, music, music is for, for children, you know? Like, it's just something that I grew up with. Um, and yeah, I guess I didn't, I mean, now that you've said it, it makes sense. <laughs> but it's not something that's conscious We're going to rethink our, uh, yeah, just, our whole adult I'm life. I'm going to get a real job tomorrow. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I, I think partially it is that kind of, um, it's a small rebellion against kind of growing up in some respects or like, a re like an, em an embrace of the things. I mean, low culture is, um, you know, yeah, is, is often associated with kind of like things that are less sophisticated or, or what, what have you. Um, I mean, obviously in, uh, in, in the comics world, there is a kind of, a, for the last 20 years, there's been a growing kind of um, general public uh, and mainstream understanding that uh, comics just aren't for kids anymore. Like that's the, most people who work in comics will be like, oh, not that headline again. And, and yeah, so. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's one of the, I mean, I got into the comics that I do as a child, and um, I spent a lot of time with children. I work with children. Um, I wrestled with, because I do funny animal comics with the guys, and they look like Disney comics. I wrestled with a thing, uh, asking the publishers to say not for children on the cover. Um, I may regret that that's not there. <laughs> There's nothing that bad in it, but they're not for children. <laughs> yeah. But but children do like them, so... <laughs> Chil children, artists, lunatics, um, tend, it tends to be uh, my audience. So. <laughs> I, I imagine, like, paintings... Back in the old days, it would have been like considered stuffs for children, you know, like, you know, like, I mean, I'm talking like caveman days, you know, like, hey, if I, you know, take a bunch of these berries and I squish them together and then I put my hand in it and I slap it on the wall, I get like a painting. And I just wonder, like, I wonder if it's like that sort of thing. And then, you know, when did, when did paintings become, you know, such highbrow art? Well, Back then, everybody like nobody lived to be an adult. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah. Just, just ended right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, there's one back here. Okay. Just a quick uh, question: How many people are AGO members? Put your hands up. Okay, great. AGO members. Representing. Yeah. Hi there. Um, I really liked the comment, and it came a bit uh, a bit early on in the presentation about 
um, the contrast of indie as oppositional rather than indie as minor league. Um, and that really kind of resonated with me. And I guess one of the things that uh, just kind of is a possible unifying factor on all of the maybe playful but not necessarily childish genres is an element of storytelling. And so I was wondering if you could uh, comment maybe, because um, I see elements of storytelling in all of these, and, and there does seem to be kind of a oppositional versus um, kind of minor versus major league aspect of storytelling. So I guess my question is, can you, can you maybe talk a little bit about what oppositional storytelling is like in the mediums that you choose? I um, uh, I guess I, I sort of uh, disagree to a certain extent uh, along the lines of like storytelling because um, I feel like I mean there's there's a lot in mine I jam story into everything apparently um, and but I actually view it as a negative thing when it comes to games. Um, I am constantly rewarded for doing it, so it makes it hard to not do it because it's my main skill set. But I, I would say both both these guys. This, I mean, uh, the traditional narrative is not is not there as much. I mean, sometimes right. in your comics. But. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a storyteller, but I'm um, everybody dies. <laughs> They're reborn like next episode. I mean, so it doesn't. Mad. I mean, I mean, one of my, one of my major influences is, is Zen Cohen's um, or like nonsense stories. So there's, there's always I'm always spinning yarns. I guess there's a Scheherazade or something going on in my work. Um, so there's always a story going on, but like every, like everybody dies all the time. Um, but then they're just they're reborn again. Um, so I guess that's kind of an oppositional. I don't know. I like lies. <laughs> um, I'm a terrible liar. Um, I'm, I've learned to be honest because I can't lie. But um, in my in my art, I lie all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I um, just make shit up. So just to kind of get a, at what, what you're saying with with um, with oppositional storytelling, do you mean do you mean like different uh, s stories that are kind of like uh, against the status quo or kind of um, like that kind of thing, or how do you mean? So for my job, I work with a lot of corporate people, mm -hmm. and so the whole kind of uh, using algorithms for data visualization, so for us, it's like there's a corporate story about that. You visualize data, you, you uh, present it in a certain kind of way, you use you know plateau to kind of represent all the arrows going up or, or whatever, right? And so one of the things that was really appealing to me in the talk about, about using, you're basically using algorithms to create a container to have an adventure. And so for me, that's in my, from my perspective, that's kind of like, a, that's kind of a form of oppositional storytelling. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't really sure if I was getting that wrong or if there's another way to talk about it. So, but. I yeah, that's a, a hint. Sure. Yeah. No. That's that's great. And and like to define f further, story is is kind of a broader term than say narrative. Like the the, the uh, my um my issue around st around story 
um, is often that it's, it's um, assumed to be a good thing to put into a game, for instance, whereas in ideally uh, the player is telling the story or the player is like driving the plot forward and other things like your atmosphere, like your container you're talking about. So like the, the, the environment they're in and the, and the kind of characterization of the other players and those types of things are all things that can, that can tell a story. But there's, there's something so, um, uh, you, you can't just put a narrative or a plot directly, you can't lay that into a, into, a, into a game in the same way you can adapt a novel into a, into a, 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 a novel into a movie, for instance. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's uh, but, but I hear what you're saying in terms of like, um, uh, yeah, it, it being, but I guess what is it, what is it, what do you see it being oppositional to, like uh, a kind of, uh, like a, a more corporate kind of way of thinking or? Well, I guess I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> Riff on it, Jim. Sorry to keep going back to you. Um, uh, you guys have anything there? I don't know what an algorithm is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't really. There's nothing opposite. We have time. I, mean, I guess. Right. Yeah. Go on, but while you're thinking, we have time for one more question. And here it is. Um, I just have a question for uh, Jonathan Mack. Um, I remember um, earlier you were said you said how um, video games is something we don't understand, and I just wanted to wrap my head around it. I just really wanted to know what you meant by that. I guess. I guess with film and music, um, maybe film not so much because I don't know that as well, but with music, um, I know how to easily convey uh, emotions, basic emotions and basic feelings. Um, I know how to tell a story through it. Um, and I know it to the point where it can be nuanced. Whereas in a video game, not really. Like, some people, like, I don't know, Every, everyone fantasizes about being the first person to create a video game that makes you cry. So it's, I don't like, that's the point where we're at with video games. And that, that to me is you know, a, a big signifier that we don't really understand what the hell this thing is. Um, I don't know how to like, just talk about really adult things that I think about, you know, like, um, I don't know, whatever. In, in movies, I watch a lot about movies about like heartbreak and like how all that can go down. Um, couples in love, who don't love anymore, who cheat or whatever. I don't understand how you would create, like to, to even discuss that in a video game without doing so in a very simple, hand-holdy way. You know what I mean? Like um, that doesn't, in a way that doesn't evolve into a linear format like a book or a movie. So, so that's what I mean by we don't know what this thing is. So would you say that video games are more complex in terms of like conveying an emotional message or just like a message in general? I don't know that they're necessarily more complex. Um, it's just that 
it's a new way of thinking of, of like it's a new way of thinking about authorship because you don't have control like you don't you don't have control over um, uh, the pacing and the timing of, of what you know your your participant sees and experiences and and that can affect I mean that affects everything especially if you think about music um, you know if you imagine at any time the 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 listener could just like turn the violin knob up inside, you know, in, in a punk rock song. It's just that, that would change the vibe of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, yeah, I mean, it's just, I feel like if video games and, like, linear art had started at the same time, then maybe we would be at the same point today. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's, like, something to be learned from, like, improv um, because I feel like I feel like basically you're dealing when you create something in a game context, you're creating something that has like a collaborator in the player that you're that you can never be sh quite sure of. You're, you're, there's this constant tension between either you only allow them a certain set number of things to do and and very tightly control their experience, or you give them like a broad range of choices and then you lose control over crafting that experience for them. Yeah. So an example would be like, you know, um, you know, someone's, uh, someone, you're having like a serious conversation in the, in the game space and, and you're, and, and like someone's supposed to give you a significant look and in, in a, you know, yeah, exactly. You're looking all over the place. You're looking, you know, like th that is the first kind of inclination of like a game player um, is like to, you know, examine your environment for like stuff and what can I pick up and what can I do? It's not to sort of necessarily sit there and look at um, the person who's talking to you uh, for a subtle nuance. And part of that has to do with like uh, the audience, the audience has to be... Um, has to be trained to pay attention to those things and oh, yeah, that's, yeah. you know and, and and it's coming like it it feels like it's 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 changing but it, it's it happens in tandem with the type of work that's being produced like if you don't have a work that's that's subtle and nuanced then what's the point of like giving it that type of attention so it, it's kind of i think those things have got to kind of uh happen in tandem for yeah. it to make sense yeah yeah i really like that point about like the us as the audience might not even understand how to how to view the work. Because I remember, like, every time I watch a movie, I think, when you do something like a jump cut or, like, a, a flashback, I think, boy, when that came out, like, that was an innovation. Like, did people understand that? Cause it, and, then, and there's some games, like, on the very fringe of, or very underground uh, video games I play that um, kind of have aspects of that that indeed do have flashback but are done in a... Uh, in a certain way that even myself, I don't understand. Um, but having, now that I understand and now that I've played and I, I know what it is, I can look out for it. So yeah, I don't know. Just like building that vocabulary is, yeah. from the viewer's point of view. It feels like we're just getting rolling, but yet we must end. So at this opportunity, I'd like to thank Jonathan and Mark and Jim for sharing insights into your practice with us. I'd like to thank all of you for coming and um, to let you know about a couple of upcoming events that are happening at the gallery. We're opening an exhibition of Francis Bacon and Henry Moore's work next week. There's a public talk on the 3rd with some of the curators of that show. And in Jim's 
game slash video that we had a chance to look at, you got a kind of behind the scenes tour of our production kitchen. And on April 11th in Frank's restaurant, we're turning the restaurant into a kind of performance space for an event. We're presenting in conjunction with the Images Festival of Experimental Film and Video. The night's called Making Space for More, and a Brooklyn-based artist named Andy Lampert um, did kind of a similar thing to Jim in that he explored the nooks and crannies of the galleries and uh, is kind of swirling that into a three-hour monologue, slideshow, and film screening night uh, that takes over the restaurant. So that's another thing that we have coming up. I hope to see you at that and at future events. Thanks, everyone. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.